Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is William Oldroyd, a theatrical director turned filmmaker whose first feature, Lady Macbeth, is in select theaters now in the U.S. and Canada, and opening wider this Friday, August 4th. Set in the middle of the 19th century, it's a nasty little character study with a knockout central performance from Florence Pugh, and you should definitely check it out if it's on a screen near you. Will chose Cachet, Michael Haneke's 2005 thriller starring Daniel Otoy and Juliette Binoche as Georges and Anne, a Paris couple whose comfortably bourgeois life slowly begins to come apart when Georges starts receiving mysterious surveillance videotapes of his own home and concludes that they must be related to something in his past. It's one of Haneke's best films, slippery and harrowing in all the right ways, and it sticks in the head like few of his others. In fact, when I made my list of the best films of the last decade for now, Cachet came in at number four, between Children of Men and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. But this isn't about me, is it? This is someone else's movie. This was the Hanukkah film that introduced me to Hanukkah. Uh Um, Because once I saw this in 2005 in uh, my local independent cinema, I then wanted to see everything. So I then went and found in the, doesn't exist now, but the DVD store, which I had a local one of those too, um, had the box set. So then I started with Seventh Continent. Oh, good. So that's right. Haneke had a much better representation in the UK than he did in Canada anyway. It was really right. hard to find his films if you hadn't seen them theatrically. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I started with Benny's video. Did you? Uh, which was screened yeah I reviewed that for the Toronto Star in 92 because I'm old um, <laughs> and we saw the, we saw it in a room smaller than this a tiny little screening room yeah. and it was excruciating in the best possible way but that film much like Cachet you don't really see anything truly disturbing you're just exposed to it constantly and then it's just what I like that in, in Benny's video I love the fact that actually the, the murder you don't see, mm-hmm. you know. It's it's just a, the sound, but it felt theatrical. You know, I mean, in the sense that you know, I knew Hanukkah once I started to look into his work and his life. I knew that he had started in theatre as well, and thought, you know, that it was far more intelligent to do that, especially if you're going to basically be seeing it through a video camera, which is the sort of point, wasn't it, in his video? Mm-hmm. And then it was actually the absence of anyone in the frame but you knew what was happening just outside of the frame, which was more terrifying. Oh, yeah. And what you could hear. You don't need to see it to be absolutely appalled in that moment. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't stop either. In, in much yeah. the same way that in Cachet, in Amour, he uses unbroken takes yeah. to just trap you in space with suffering. Yeah. And Cachet's suffering is much more existential. Um yeah. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So, yeah, yeah, what was your experience of it? How did you find it when you watched it for the first time? Uh, I found, thought it was compelling. I mean, really, I thought uh, I needed to see it again. So mm-hmm. I went and watched it again. Uh, and then I was able to sort of uh, make sense of it a bit more. I mean, I think part of it was that I was fully expecting to be to be told at the end who had done these things. Right. And... Um, wasn't and then it was the first time really I think it was like I think about um, when I was a kid when I was 
uh, maybe about 11 or 12, I read this uh, Agatha Christie book, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. Mm. It's the first time I had ever experienced an unreliable narrator. Oh, okay. And I remember sort of after I finished the book, um, going downstairs and seeing my mum and just saying, I can't believe um, I've been lied to. Yeah. Uh, it really shocked me that up to that point, every book I'd read, you know, if it was first person narrative, you were, you, were, you were taught to trust that person. You know, you could, that was the one thing you could rely on. And I felt that like with Cash, it was the same thing, which is actually, here was a filmmaker, you put yourself in their hands and then they're going to essentially rob you of satisfaction or they're going to actually really make you a participant in that respect, that you are going to be asked to think really quite hard during the film about what, and to subvert all of those um, traditional um, traits, plot points, you know, the, yeah. the, the sort of set up things, you know, I, I thought that, that that was the, that was the brilliance of it for me, that it, um, and then once I started looking at the other films, I realised that there were many more examples of um, how he did that sort of more blatantly, more obviously, you know, in, in funny games, for example. Mm you know, really playing with the audience you know, in terms of rewinding scenes and direct, directly talking to camera and yeah. so on. It's, it's much more... Funny Games is one of the films... I'm, I'm amazingly purely... Ugh, I don't even know what the phrase is. I'm pure digital on Haneke. I either love them or I hate them. Yeah. There is no middle... There has yet, he has yet to make a movie where I'm thinking, yeah, that's all right. Uh, and funny games I find infuriating because of that, because it takes away any sense of um, any sense of, of fair play, I suppose. The, the tacit agreement between the director and the audience, which is that he's not going to cheat. And generally when that happens, it, it's bad writing or it's somebody just trying that, mm -hmm. trying to get past the audience, hoping people don't figure out what's, you know, like what, what's been what's been cheated or what's been left out or I, I just saw a film this morning where there's a, a shootout and five minutes later it's irrelevant and an hour later you're thinking why did that even happen yes. there's nothing that comes from that yeah. except that you get to see people get shot and then you start thinking about the characterizations of the people who were doing the shooting and all of it and it's just like pulling at a thread yeah. funny games it's deliberate and it works because it's it's earned in its blatant dishonesty but I was still mad at it, <laughs> and I like that. I mean, yeah. I get that, and that was what Haneke said, right? And I get the audience stays till the end of the film. The film has failed. Yes, exactly. But we're going to stay. It's a yeah. weird presumption, because of course we're going to stay. We're there to find out how it I ends. think he said, if you leave, you don't need the film. I think this oh, is that works basically, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's sort of, yeah, actually, it's those who stay who need to see the film. Mm. To honest. But that, what, what, that, that, that playfulness that you're talking about, the sort of manipulation, or whatever you want to call it, I love the fact that, you know, we know, like, when I was studying drama in terms of, you know, becoming a director, it's that whole thing, if, if, if in a Chekhov there is a gun, mm -hmm. you know it's going to be used. Well, he you know, absolutely, he shows us the knife at the beginning of, of um, Funny Games. You know it's in the boat. He even does a close-up, yeah. so you know that it has significance. And then just at the moment they bundle her into the boat at the end, you think, well, at least there's a knife there. Right. They toss it over the side. And I just thought... Absolutely playing with us in that respect. You know, I, I thought that, that I saw that as brilliant, even though I know that it, for others it could be deeply infuriating. Yeah. You know? <laughs> oh, I don't mind that because, yeah, if you are doing that to 
mm. hook me to to sort of make a point to as well. Pull yeah. that out. Yeah. It's, it's, as long as he remembered it was there. That's yeah. all. I, I simply oh, I ask see that you, you, right. you, know, yes, you follow through on the things you've shown me. Yes. Whether yes, they're yes. of help or not. Yeah. And in in cachet, the absence of um, an answer, the absence of guidance, mm-hmm. the fact that there is just this incredible dispassionate eye throughout the entire film. Um, it makes me think of something Danny Boyle always says, which is that he treats his characters as specimens. Right. And he's curious when he starts the project. He's just as curious as the audience should be to see what happens under certain stressful situations. Yeah. And Cachet felt that way as well. It's an experiment being performed by an unknown experimenter. But, mm. of course, it's Haneke. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine, actually, uh, Adam Naiman, uh, speculated that uh, Otoya is, is sending them to himself. And right. just doesn't know it and is unconsciously <laughs> That's really interesting, yeah isn't it but he recognized the handwriting right <laughs> so yeah it's like some kind of pure psychotic break but it doesn't like it ultimately doesn't matter where they come from the effect no. is what's important yeah exactly i mean i think that's right you know it could be that they you know in that sense are a figment of imagination it is it is a sort of message from the past isn't it that's essentially mm-hmm. what it is yeah it's just a it's a, like a it's a it's a revenant somehow. It's like something which is associated with his whatever guilt he feels, which he's buried mm-hmm. so deep, and then in that moment is forced to confront it. You know, I think that that's something for me, which is that you know I I can see that in life. You know, I can see those people who have buried. Um, that trauma, whatever you want to call it, the sort of guilt they feel towards something in the past, and actually then the, you spend your whole time essentially building an environment which protects you against that. And I really feel like this couple have done exactly that, that what they, they've created a sort of safe place in, mm-hmm. their, in their lives. You know, that's the sort of the whole notion of being bourgeois, isn't it? You know, that, that, that when something like that, a, a, a letter is then... It then penetrates. That's when it comes into yeah. that. That it, it's, it is the fear of that existence being shattered, or whatever, or or threatened, or destabilized. Mm-hmm. I suppose that's the thing. And you know, for so long, I, people have said to me, "Well, you should, you know, make work that comes out of your personal experience." I always felt like where I come from was so essentially mundane. Mm-hmm. That my upbringing was so sort of tedious. But it's those very things that Hanukkah is looking at and that he makes them compelling and yeah. thrilling, isn't it? Which it is that sort of, that middle class, that bourgeois existence and, and all of the sort of fear and paranoia associated with it. You know, that, that, that's, that's what, um, that he, you know, he's, through all of his work, I think, he's really looked at what happens when, when that that world order is, is questioned or challenged. Well, I was going to say, I mean, it's, it is a different type of home invasion, but it's the same yeah. essential premise as Funny Games. It's the time of the wolf. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, even Betty's video sort of about the, the, the cancer inside of the bourgeois existence, yeah. which is just a child that they can't understand, let alone control, but something that they've created is run amok. Yeah. It's always, maybe not the piano teacher so much, because that's about a collision of damage. But it's always inside you. Um, that's the most disturbing thing. Or, or I mean, maybe not so much in the White Ribbon either, which 
I still, that's one I've never really settled with because it seems to suggest that World War One could have been avoided if they just killed a bunch of children in this one village. Yes, and I right. think that's a little naive. <laughs> but I, the soul sickness yeah. aspect of it yes. is there. Well, uh, but it may be that um, I, th- I felt that in some way those kids that we met in White Ribbon were going to become the people who would join the Nazi party. Yeah, they're the next generation. They're next, and so it's sort of, you know, maybe it's a little bit too um, simple to sort of say, what are the things that happened to them in their experience, in their, in their upbringing, which might help give us an answer for the atrocities that happened later on. But, sure, yeah. Because it's not that clean cut, is it? But... Yeah. And they're perpetrating the atrocities. So perhaps yeah. it's not so. I mean, it's it's that whole... It's a it's the metaphor, I think, that I have the most, prob- the most trouble with because it's simply about condensing and compacting and telling this single community story yeah. which inevitably has to have more meaning than it can ultimately sustain yes. maybe it's just my own tick is it the only film of his that has um a narrator i, I mean so, yeah. you know voiceover which is interesting which is obviously then rare for him you know to use those things mm-hmm. but know. that's what lets you make the Nazi jump, right? Because you're right. looking back through history. I see, yeah. Through exactly. the flashback structure. Yeah. I think that's what lets us all do it. Yes. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, Cachet, Cachet could easily be narrated by whoever is shooting the video. You know, when you think about it, you could add a uh, diegetic level of narration that's still yeah. not audible to the characters Yes. in between sequences, but I still think it wouldn't help. It's The mystery is... The most satisfying thing about it is the fact that it isn't a satisfying mystery that we'll yeah. never know. And this is what he says, isn't it? The whole point is, if you leave that film thinking, oh, who was it? You've missed the whole point. It mm-hmm. is about why. And you know that, I think, it's the first time, as I said before, it's the first time I ever actually thought about what happens when I go and see a film. Yeah. That for so long, you give you give in, don't you, to... Um, the conventions of a genre sure and for the first time I was being challenged in that moment and I thought that yes that was that was I was being invited to participate that was the that was the crucial thing I think it's why he fundamentally fundamentally changed the way I looked at making because at that time I wasn't making films at Mm -hmm. all I mean it wasn't until much later so it was even in theatre you know thinking about how you can I think we're probably way more open to sort of manipulating an audience on stage in theatre work well we're already doing so much of it as as members of the audience you're filling in all the context it's cinema makes you uh, lock into that space you're seeing what's on the screen and whatever else is happening is directly related it has to be directly related because that's we're all pointed in the same direction looking at the same image Mm. theatre even the angle from which it's viewed will change the audience's experience, right? If you're up in the mezzanine instead of in the yes. orchestra pit, you'll have a different experience. Absolutely. Yes, exactly. And also you are looking, you know, you're able to choose where you want to look on stage, mm-hmm. you know, which is, I think, one of the great things about those sort of static long shots that he takes, which is then you are, again, able to choose where you look. And you, you, you sort of interrogate the frame far more when it's there for three minutes. Yeah then you're looking for clues yes and it's actually making you think I'm not being led in this moment to believe something or follow something because somebody isn't taking me into the mid and then the close up and then the reverse Mm -hmm. there isn't that sort of grammar that we're so used to so what do we do you know that's the 
again, it, it's, it, it asks something of you. You're being asked to actually do some work, yeah. which is what we're very used to in theatre because that is, you, you are, you know, you choose your close-up in the theatre, I suppose, you, you know, it's presented to you in wide and then you choose where to look and where mm-hmm. to focus in on. And that, you know, that's the, what I love in, in Hanukkah's films and what I wanted to bring into some of my own stuff, you know, that, yeah, that, that uh, sustained long shot, especially if it, something, can, something can play out in real time and the only relief you have from that moment is if you are actually to look away from the screen or as in the case of funny games if people were to leave the cinema mm-hmm. I guess yeah if you can if you flee do you win um, you don't with cachet because you'll never know yeah and of course you'll never know yeah <laughs> it's it is a different sort of um, play that he's doing on the audience he's he's messing with us in exactly the same way he does in his other films but he's doing it in a much more uh, cerebral, rigid yeah. way. Then um, Funny Games sort of challenges you to stay with it and yeah. and plays that. It pushes you away. It pulls you closer. It makes you sympathize. It makes you lose empathy. Yeah. Cachet just just picks at one little part and just it's. I I I've been trying to come up with an appropriate metaphor for the act of watching it at um, repeated viewings and watching yeah. it again and again, and it's like scratching at a hole in the wall and hoping you can see through it you never will no because the film no. won't reveal anything it hasn't already shown you nice. and i love that about returning to cinema uh, you you can see a different version of a play or you can yeah. see a different production even uh, depending on when you visit yes. it and when you revisit it but films are fixed in time they never change we change and so very interesting you know your yeah, experience um, yeah. a friend of mine used to say that uh, the rules of the game was his defining cinema because every time he revisited it, he would empathize with a different character. Right. And yeah. it, you know, it took him four or five viewings to realize that it was him, not the movie. Right. <laughs> You're just aging into a new You can say, well, that film's dated, isn't it? No, it's not the film. It's you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, you just don't like what you remember yes. about that period when you first saw it or who you were or any of those things. I've actually had some of those experiences but I've tried to explain to somebody a shot that I'm looking for. I've said, oh, it reminds me of this film. Let's watch it. And when we've gone back to watch that, I've completely misremembered it. Ah, uh, yeah. Completely misremembered the opening of Rosetta, for example. Okay. I really thought that it started with her running through this factory escaping these men, but it doesn't. It starts some, in another way. That's right. And I thought, why did I remember it like that? It's interesting, isn't it, what we have well, what selected? You, it's what yeah. you retain, right? It's what you take away from the experience yeah. in the most vivid moments. Yeah. Maybe that's where it should start. Yes. You know, like, if you were telling that story, that's where you would open That's where I wanted to start the film, yeah, yeah, exactly. It is fascinating. I mean, these are all unchanged and fixed, and with the exception of, you know, Star Wars, they'll, they'll be the same every time you revisit them, every time yeah. they're reissued. Maybe the color temperature will change. Yes. But whatever secrets they hold they'll be the same secrets. Uh, Lynch's yeah. films are the same way. He'll use time to make you drop your guard. That moment in Fire Walk With Me where a pan suddenly becomes terrifying and he repeats it in uh, Mulholland Drive as well yes. with the thing behind the Winkies. And those shouldn't work on second viewing. Those moments shouldn't be as frightening, but of course now you've built in your apprehension yeah. and the audience is primed. Uh, watching the remake of Funny Games was remarkable to me mm. because 
other than the breed of the dog. Everything's identical. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But then you realize, oh, it's a golden retriever now. I mean, that actually popped out at me, and I experienced <laughs> the story differently because it was a different dog. And they were made, was it 10 years apart? Yes, uh, or 11. 11 years It might have just apart. been when they were released, in 96 and So Hannah had changed. That's true. You know, I'm actually trying to make something he made before was impossible, presumably, because, mm. you know, he was a different person. Yeah. This is one of the big things for me that coming to making to making a film for the first time because what I love about theatre is the sense that every night it will be different. Mm-hmm. You know, there is it's that's the thing that you know actually as a filmmaker, sorry, sorry, as a, as a as a stage director, if it's not perfect, it doesn't matter because you've got tomorrow, mm-hmm. and then you can always chat about it afterwards in the bar and talk to each other and just say, what should we do tomorrow? That's you know or wasn't quite working but we know that we can get there and make changes with the film you know, when we brought it to TIFF last year and we had the, the premiere everybody said are you not nervous I said no because I, I was going into it in the same way that I would go and watch a play which is that we've always we can always tweak it and change it but of course it's fixed and it was right. only in that moment that I introduced it on stage I thought I can't it, it's set it's <laughs> totally set Nobody has ever seen this film before. We never had a test screening. And the judgment now, which is about to come to this film from 700 people, how many are in that winter garden, mm-hmm. um, the buck stops with the director. Yeah. And it was the first time in that moment I realised everything on the screen that people will see, will think they will think it's because of a decision you've made, which ultimately it is. Yeah, yeah. And so that sort of shared experience that you have as a as a stage director had gone. And then I suddenly became nervous. <laughs> Way more nervous than if I was watching a play. I can't imagine <laughs> why. Uh, yeah, it is. It's a thing that is inexplicable, isn't it? The, this sudden sense that this is the only chance you get to see it fresh. Yeah. And, and you must have... However many dozen times you would watch it in the process of post-production too. Yeah, you know you you can't have the same reaction. So how do you process that? Did you stay for it? Did you watch it with the audience? Yes, I sat between Alice, who wrote it, and Fowler, who produced it. Okay. Uh, also, I was I was quite interested to see how an audience would respond to it. Mm-hmm. The the maximum number we'd had was about thirty cast and crew screening. Oh, so but they were the people who'd made it. Yeah. So it was it was met with absolute silence because they were all just watching what I had done to their work, right. basically. Yeah, they were evaluating it. Whereas the response we got in, in Toronto was, you know, they were very vocal and supportive audience. Uh, people were laughing and cheering in a way I hadn't expected them at all. Oh, no. Nice. I hadn't even sort of planned for it. And, you know, you can't, you know, you can't really predict what that's, that's going to happen, can you? But um, they, seem, they seem to get behind it. Um yeah, it was. It was, um, it was a very happy experience. Of course, it could have gone the other way. It could have gone completely the other way. But then, it was a funny thing, you know, about you know, standing by your work. Is I mean, in a way that you would never paint a picture, then stand in the, in the gallery by the painting, <laughs> waiting to hear what people thought about it. Yeah, someone um, will. I mean, that's some people, inevitable, some, right? <laughs> someone is going to do that now. <laughs> But but in a way you can move on, you can paint it, you can put, you can don't even have to put it up yourself. Give it to someone to put up, and then mm-hmm. just carry on. And you're completely uh, uninfluenced by an audience. Right. Yeah. 
Um, unless you need people to buy your work, then maybe actually there's a... But, you know, if you're not really interested in that, then you can just keep painting. Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't it, have a performative aspect, right? I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's a fixed work in the same way that a book might be, but music, cinema, those are things that you have to experience in real time. Yeah. So I think there's some unspoken contract where the feedback is just as important because you need to you it's like finding out people listen to podcasts at 1.25 or 1.5 speed mm-hmm. i can't abide why would you do that that's horrible <laughs> i don't even like watching pal dvds because yeah. of the four percent speed up I, right. I can tell uh the um yeah cinema and music and and theater are and maybe television too i suppose are just designed to be experienced at a determined pace so you would want to make sure that was being yeah appreciated right that the laughs were coming in the right point that the suspense rises when it should and i guess that's that's something that you work out in the first instance with the writer Mm -hmm. and then you know with the the actors and then in 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 the editing yeah and that's something i really didn't realize before making this film that actually pace is something that is absolutely to do with that final phase in the edit yeah totally change because i was trying to get it in performance is what you would do on stage on stage but actually you can really change performance in the edit in terms of pace i mean you you can't change quality performance and instinct you know and, and what they you know of course you need to have that there but um yeah and i think that's or in the case of hanukkah the shots that you use Mm-hmm. the selection of shots you have yeah That's I was it. I was going to bring it back to the actors to yeah. how Otoy and Binoche are just utterly present even when they're not present for each other um, when the when the marriage is starting to shift when the poles are coming apart yeah they are utterly in the right rhythm for the film mm. which is a rhythm that I don't know that Binoche does very often for other directors I mean yeah she seems to slot in differently in this film in, than she does in, say, the the Kislowski film or this yeah. um, the Amer- a number of American movies she's made. She just feels like she inhabits this one. And Huppert does it too, but mm. she's worked with Haneke so many times it just seems natural at this point that they find each other's rhythm. But Binoche was a real surprise for me because she's so watchful and so careful yes. right up until she isn't and doesn't have to be uh, that... Yeah, it, well, and I focus think, and it. I think that Hanukkah must know what he wants because th- there are no cuts in those moments. You know, he has it in one shot, mm-hmm. and the camera might move; it might sort of track a bit and then come and rest in a certain place. But ultimately, the rhythm is the rhythm of performance, and then you cut to the next scene. So he must know, as the creator, that that is going to be the rhythm of the like of the film. Mm-hmm. That each con- each component is going to work to because that's the thing I found very difficult when we got to the edits. What if it just is doesn't work? It's too slow or it's totally wrong in the moment that we need it to be this or that. Yeah. Well, he must have total mastery to know this is this is the the pace and the tone needs to be in this moment. Yeah. So no, that he doesn't so. have that. He doesn't have the. Maybe he has the coverage. Who knows? It would be interesting to ask Hannigan. Although I suspect he doesn't. I mean, I just really feel I like I can't imagine know. he would get the reverse just to be sure. Yeah. No. He seems. I mean, and and Cachet very much seems to be set up to emulate surveillance. Yeah. We're seeing everything in wide shots and yeah. static mostly, and and camera placement is very rigid mm. and and 
we might as well be watching someone watch them even when we're not. It's just sort of matching the, the video footage that way. Uh, and I think also he does it in Amour as well, the camera's much closer. He just waits for people to crack. That's his thing. And they usually do. Yeah. Because that's what he wants. That's where the story has to go to make it a, a Haneke film, really, to make yeah. him interested in telling the story in the first place. The, um, the rupture, the, the fragmentation, the split in the marriage, the, all of these tensions are the things that we're there for, really, whether we know it or not. Mm -hmm. That's what's coming. And what really gets me about Cachet is that you could pull back and say, oh, this is because of this thing that he's buried, but she doesn't know. So is she picking up where are they, where are they, how are they reading each other? And then, yes. you know, I've been married for long enough that yeah. I, now I know. You know, in 2005, I didn't. Now yes. it's like, oh, yeah, no, you can know someone well enough to see them coming apart even if they don't know it. Yes, exactly. It's, it's just how familiarity works. It's how intimacy works. Yeah. And when those things become... Well, no. I was going to say when they become weaponized, but Haneke weaponizes them. The characters don't. And that's, that's what makes his films so distinctive. And that's what, I think that's what makes Cachet Land the way it does. Yes. It's tension without release. Uh, because they get one, but we don't. Mm -hmm. We don't know. We don't find out. We have to leave with an incomplete story. Yes. And Amour is the closest thing he has to a happy ending. Yeah. And, you know, it's only a happy ending. <laughs> it's a man who disappears. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's only a happy ending because we can believe that it means that the suffering has ended. Yes. Um, in Cachet, it's just going to go on and on. And oh, I see. Yes, that's what you mean. Yes, yeah. the the, 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 yes, that is a relief, isn't it? In the mm -hmm. sense that the murder of his wife. Yeah, well, and his and the end to his suffering too. Yes, that, exactly. That yeah. it's over. Yes, even if it means death. <laughs> uh, That's Hanukkah's happiest end. It is. It really is. <laughs> Maybe the piano teacher. Yeah, you know, it's just well, again, unanswered. I think this is mm -hmm. very interesting. You know, that it really challenges filmmaking. You know, that you can leave it a, a open ended, and yeah. then we can decide what happens next. And that that then I really feel like that's what I have found is so, being so good in theatre that people come into the bar and they want to talk about what they just see and discuss it. Mm -hmm. Some people don't. They want to go home and just sit quietly and think about those things. But that's the same as Hanukkah too. But, the, but absolutely, you know, if you can go, if you can carry on the conversation in the bar afterwards or in the restaurant on your way home, that's everything, I think. You know, yeah. you, you know, actually, it's a... It's a it, it, the film doesn't end in the cinema. The conversation continues as you go on. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, Lady Macbeth seems to have a, a sense of an epilogue as well, where you can just continue to figure out what's going to... Yes. Or not what's going to happen. We kind of know. Um, yeah. the, the trajectory of that character at the end of the film is laid out quite clearly. Yeah. But how will it happen? What will manifest? What new challenges? How... That's... Yeah, it's it's... It's a thing that I think people are much more confident in than they might have been 10 years ago, where if a film ended that way, it would have been jarring. And now it's accepted that narratives can simply glide away yeah. or abandon their characters. I saw um, White Ribbon in uh, Mayfair, cinema in Mayfair, okay. which, if you know, the area is sort of a very affluent area of London and so on. And uh, it was in a sort of mid-morning screening um, so the cinemagos were of a certain age and mm -hmm. um, probably had very fixed ideas about what cinema was. Anyway, I'm saying this because at the end of White Ribbon, <laughs> as it cut to black and the credits rolled, the, the, one elderly old uh, gentleman just screamed, 
cop out <laughs> at the screen. And I feel like that was his feeling, which is that you know, if, if there's no ending, then he he hasn't thought of one. Right. But that's the opposite of Hanukkah, isn't it? Isn't yeah. Absolutely. Oh, he knows what he knows yes. exactly. I thought it's very interesting. That was this man's interpretation of the end of a Hanukkah film. Mm-hmm. That, you say, that essentially he didn't take the challenge, which is to go away and to talk about what might happen. But actually, he just thought this guy can't be bothered to give us the satisfaction yeah. of an ending. I've sat here two hours and 15 minutes. Yeah, I want satisfaction. I demand satisfaction. But there's... (laughs) I'm just... So many things are better without concrete endings. Endings diminish, uh, especially declarative ones on something, on a story like that. You know, there is no and they all lived happily ever after. There can't be. Um, There's... Yeah. It's not... It isn't polar. There isn't a they all did or they all didn't. It's you're supposed to be left with your reaction. Yeah, no, of course. I mean, that's... that's funny games, maybe. I mean, that has an ending. Yeah. I don't... Well, they sail away. Well, the, yeah. the, the ending is a new beginning, right? Mm-hmm. Because they go to the next house. Exactly. Yeah. So it's going to repeat forever, I think. It's what you feel, I get yeah. that impression. Yeah, and they have no past. They have no future. They just mm. existed. Uh, that's the most disturbing idea. And it's the same with the tapes in, in Cachet. Here they are. Yeah, what happens and, is up to you and Seventh Continent you're given absolutely no justification or reason for why they do this thing mm-hmm. they just do it they and do it's it. all of them like it's not just it's, yeah. there's no there's no debate no. there's no it's um, it's the oh, what is it? I know there's one it's not a Haneke film there's a film fairly recently where um, a number of family members make a decision and some of them don't agree with and they're forced right. into it and it's a nightmare it's it's horrifying right. to watch everybody forced to go along and it must have been it's not the invitation some some mm. small horror film I saw a couple of years ago and I remember thinking that this is exactly how it should go like this is this feels real and therefore more terrifying mm. to know that you're trapped oh the sacrament uh, it's right. Ty West's film, The Sacrament. Yeah. To know that you're watching a situation that can't end well, but will end worse. You know, and just the more time you sit there, it's. I think it's what Eli Roth tries to do and doesn't quite get because he's more interested in writing snappy dialogue than right. in following through the, to a nightmare. Yes. And you just, there's no way out. And it's, there's another half hour of movie. So whatever happens. <laughs> great. Right now, that's yeah. <laughs> that, that's far more disturbing than not knowing anything, I think, is to yeah. witness somebody who does know what's coming and can't stop it. Yes. Um, try to resist anyway. Yes. And I, I guess in, I mean, the, the, it's served, isn't it, in funny games? You know, mm-hmm. let's make a bet. Yeah. You know, I bet you'll all be dead by the end of, uh, but by tomorrow morning. And you bet that you won't be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is the point that they know that that is, is the, the end is quite clear at that point, isn't it? Yeah, well, he's telling us. He's telling us, and yeah. that's a film that has the self awareness to to pull it off to actually yeah. make that sale. Um, yeah. Cachet is playing a different game. Uh, it's a game with no winners. Mm-hmm. There are losers, but there are no winners. And I always found it strange why he is never able to admit to his wife what he'd done and that is the point of the film mm. of course isn't it which is yeah. the person he should share this with he doesn't because he's too embarrassed in a way the sort of the tenderest moment in the film is when he goes to see his mum and they sit on the bed and he just talks to him uh, to, to her about Majid and just says you know what happened and then he learns a little bit about 
his parents and mm-hmm. so on. But it, you know, context, but, it, but, it, but, it's his, but it's his mother that he needs as the closest person that respects, you mm-hmm. know, who is ultimately the person who was responsible for and sets up what was going to happen. But yeah. and I wonder if that's not maybe the smartest comment on on George on on adulthood yeah. and responsibility. I mean, there are things that everyone carries with them that they don't have to. And there are things that we do when we're kids that we don't understand, but that haunt us. I mean, I'm sure everybody has those. And I don't know if... I mean, I'm trying to think of what horrors I have in in my past. I probably don't have any. I'm Canadian. We don't... (laughs) We don't have a tradition of that sort of thing. Uh, uh, But the... You know, there's thankfully no colonialism in my immediate past. Yes. but he's, right. so, he, he's sort of proposing, isn't he, that that this very specific event mm-hmm. with Maji's family is sort of is representative of the universal. Sure. Um, that in some way it should represent all colonial guilt. I mean, it's a hard thing to sort of try and you know right. um, pin down. But, but it's that microcosm metaphor again. Yeah, yeah exactly. Within that family mm-hmm. dynamic. And then it would make sense that. He would talk to his mother, who was there, yes, and be unable to even start having that conversation with his wife, who wasn't, and also who's only known him as an adult, mm. and so he can't relate to her. I mean, you know, you're not the same person you were as a child. I think that's sort of the point of the film as well, is that George doesn't fully feel he should be held responsible for something that happened when he was decades earlier. Yes, exactly. A different person. Exactly. And the only. Oh, I'm kind of sorry now that the film doesn't end with a pan out with every t- every doorstep having a tape, every doorstep having an envelope at the end. Yes, because that's the logical conclusion. I mean, it's a it's a it's a a collective culpability. Yes, that he is being forced to shoulder himself. Yes, I think, well, that's it. I mean, I think that you know, even it's even the, the idea of a sort of unreliable narrator in the sense that you know we don't even know what his memory was. Like when we see. Mm-hmm flashback is it flashback or is it dream yeah you know, when when Majid as a young boy comes at him with an axe is that what really happened or did did he cut the chicken's head off I mean did he was it just something that he imagined at the age of six yeah was it a child what is the child's perspective how much does he even understand exactly or does he understand now and everything that happened after that was from a point in which he can't really truly remember mm-hmm. he's trying to you know, he wouldn't have he wouldn't necessarily have decided to go to his parents against Majid because he was Algerian. It must have been because he was jealous of the attention he was getting or something like that. You know, a six-year-old would feel, which can you really blame a six-year-old in that instance? You know? Yeah. But a six-year-old would know that he was lying, sure. But... But maybe not why. What? Not why, yeah. yeah. And you don't... I mean, God, I don't understand my own motivations when I was 25. Yeah. Six. (laughs) But that's the... um, that's the, the crux of the story, too, is that we are assuming that that's the incident that has resulted in all of this. Yeah. And there's not even necessarily any proof of that. Yeah. It's just where the guilty mind goes. And that's what makes me think that this could work with almost, on almost anyone. If, if you just started getting packages of, I suppose, DVDs now or YouTube links, just, I can't even imagine how you'd recontextualize it for the social media age. Yeah. But if you were... If you came to feel persecuted 
why would you feel that way? What would make you think you needed to be persecuted? His justification for it is this event. Yes. But exactly. what if it's not that at all? Yeah. And actually, as you say, if everybody receives a package or a letter on the doorstep, you would find within your history something that you felt yeah. that connected to. And it could actually be, it could be the same message for everybody. Exactly. Absolutely. And, and then triggering we, a different response. And it would trigger different, exactly, a different guilt in every single person. Mm. Maybe that's how you update it. Yeah. You go big. Yeah. You go global. Well, there was Darren Brown, you know, the, um, he's a sort of, um, what, do you, what do you call him? I suppose, um, yeah, not that, not as sort of an illusionist or whatever, but he, he did that experiment, didn't he, where he got everybody to write down, draw around their hand on a bit of paper and then write their birth date down and mm. then put in an envelope. And then he produced for a group of 12 people. Um, a biography which they felt was so specific a sort of not, not a sort of horoscope but something equivalent to what's right. going to happen to them and everybody was crying and saying this is I can't believe he's spoken to me so directly and personally and, and yet it was the same text right. for everybody and I, I just feel like that is sort of what you could do yeah in this moment here which is that that is the trigger that thing isn't it mm-hmm. and it's, but it's a child somebody must know because it's, it's the it's the childish drawings isn't it those yeah. those um, sense that it is something from his youth I also remember remembering there's those strange flashes that happen of Majid as a boy in the house with the blood coming out of his mouth mm-hmm. which are not they are ghostly they're totally they're totally out of the world of memory you know mm-hmm. just something the the mind the guilty mind burps up yeah or an association he hasn't yet figured out how to make. We're just seeing his perspective in it as it comes together. Yeah. And it's a really an amour and in um, Kasha where you have that, this sort of you know, fragility of the mind. So when he walks out and he's in a, a, his own nightmare and the, the apartment's flooded and so on. Mm-hmm. And then the hand grabs him in a more. I mean, this is, you know, is it's only there, isn't it, in those two films where I think we really see that sense of um, the mind playing tricks. Otherwise, everything's quite sort of logical, rational, academic, yeah. cold. Yeah, Haneke doesn't do much with surrealism no. or, or impressionism, but those yes. moments are absolutely necessary, I think, to show us just how fragmented the characters are because yeah. if, you know, if I'm doing this you have to understand just how profound their disconnection is yeah. and their panic. Yeah. Oh, he's so good at that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> he really is. I resent his control, I have to say because it can be exhausting yeah. uh, but it's ultimately rewarding and I, I uh, jokingly but also seriously, this really did happen uh, for, for an entire week at TIFF I never ceased to get a laugh uh, just by telling people that I had seen, and I did see this walking by um, the restaurant on the ground level of the Intercontinental, I did see Michael Haneke staring disapprovingly at a glass of water. <laughs> see, that's it. Anyone who knows his work, that lands. That joke actually works. Uh, he was just he was just focused on it. It was. His arms were below the table. He was sitting rock still. I mean, you know, he looks like angry Christopher Lee. Yes, exactly. With his huge white yeah. beard. And just glaring at a, gl- a simple glass of water which had been placed dead center. And I'm just wondering now if he arranged it so that yeah. everyone who walked past would see this image. Because that would amuse him. <laughs> yeah. 
so good. But it was. I've never uh, spoken to him otherwise. We've never. I've never had the chance to interview him. We've passed each other in hallways a few times, but that is the only encounter I want to have now because yeah, it's exactly. perfect. And apparently, he's quite jovial. I mean, uh, you would have to be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah please. You hope so, wouldn't you? Yeah. But then the, this is what's interesting. I find this so interesting that you know he really is somebody who actually uh, hates violence. I think. Mm. Somebody, like somebody who has not encountered violence in his own life I mean in terms of like physical violence right. um, has never it seems here from what I've read has never actually sort of ever been involved in any violent acts but is fascinated by it and fascinated to explore it in the same way that like, Nicholas Winding Refn really wants to explore like quite grotesque um uh, acts of violence in his mm. films, like a sort of pornography. Yeah, Do you I, know, this is sort of strange. Like, but he's not doesn't seem to be a very violent man, right? And Haneke's approach to it is to study it, is to be clinical about it. Whereas yeah. Reffin wants to wade in and play with the prosthetics and, and get yeah. dirty and messy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an austere cruelty that defines his films. You know, things are just happening because they have to, yeah. not because anyone particularly wants them to. Yes, um, and it's. Uh, it's an infliction of, of chaos. Infliction of chaos? That sounds incredibly pretentious. <laughs> it, is, it is the application of chaos to their marriage in cachet that sets everything spinning, but yeah. it's also his own conscious, his, his, his own conscious repression, I guess, because he's aware yeah. of what he's been doing that finally can't be repressed anymore that sends him on that path. It's just, mm. it's so, yeah, it's difficult to describe because it works emotionally. It fits perfectly. It makes absolute emotional sense. It just doesn't make logical sense yes. until you're in it. Yeah. And then, of course, every decision just follows. He just wishes it would go away. I suppose that's the only reason I can think for why he might lie. He doesn't want to face up to it. Mm -hmm. Like a kid, like a guilty child. Yeah. You know, if I wait this out, you, you can see it in people who just don't have the emotional capacity to deal with responsibility. I mean, yes. certain presidents notwithstanding and former mayors of Toronto, they're just, right. you know, the idea oh, that if you just cool. ride it out, it'll go away. Yeah. And sometimes it actually does. Yeah. <laughs> but, but George is an intellectual, so he knows on some other level it, it's not. He has the self-knowledge that the others don't. That um, this is Well, it's, it's also the worst sort of accusation, isn't it, as well, for mm -hmm. somebody like that, which is that somehow he is responsible for... Um, the abuse of somebody who was orphaned and Algerian mm -hmm. in France. Yes. You know, the context of that is everything. You know, that wouldn't go down well in the intellectual circles in which he moves in that TV show that he has and the, and the very bourgeois existence that he has there. Mm -hmm. You know, that, I think that's something... Um, and whether he even did it, I mean, this is the whole... That yeah, he doesn't yeah, yeah. even know. This is the whole point, but he resorts... And, and unfortunately, he just resorts to violence and to threatening behaviour when challenged. Mm -hmm. And he fails his own... Which is very standards. childish. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that is that is the ultimate... I mean, my ultimate nightmare, I suppose, is that I'm ostracised from my circle for something I didn't mean to do. Yeah. But it would be something that... To, for it to be something that I don't remember doing is even worse, I'm sure. Yes. Um, just, you know, the, we're at a point now, I was talking about this with John Ronson a few weeks ago, uh, both on the show and off, yeah. uh, that we're at a point now where the progressive side of the world is eating itself because 
people are deeming each other not suitably on board with the one specific thing that is most important to them, and that's where it all fractures. Whereas the reactionary side is simply in lockstep until, you know, until their guy dies, they're behind him. Yeah. Or or disgraces himself so profoundly, and we still haven't figured out what that is. But yeah, um, just, George's position seems even more tenuous. The more the more he digs, the worse it gets. I just realized another film I could have brought in to talk about, which I absolutely love, is um, Force Majeure. Ah, it's funny. Yeah. I was going to mention Austin a few minutes ago. Which is the same. Which is the same thing. Which is like, don't dig. Basically, mm-hmm. if you if he if he had ex, if he had just said yeah I did it and I I mean I'm sorry it was stupid but yeah. it's he cannot in that moment you can't lie it's, it was in, pure instinct yeah and he triples down on it I mean it's, it's what a remarkable film yeah really and I think it's a great date movie that is <laughs> the perfect date movie for a last date <laughs> <laughs> but you've got to go and see it because then what happens is when you go to that movie as a couple you then become the second couple, yeah. you, which is um, yeah, yeah, yeah. his friend and his girlfriend, where you then because of, you know then it says would you do would you act in a similar way you know mm. that's the whole point. God and God help you if you do. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, this actually brings us very elegantly to the to the final question of the podcast, which is, what if anything of Cachet or Hanukkah's work have you appropriated, borrowed, stolen, or, or incorporated into your own creative DNA. I mean, there, there are hints of it in Lady Macbeth, I think. Yes. I mean, it's very... I was very aware that I didn't want to just basically rip off Hanukkah's... You know, <laughs> first of all, you can't, because it's, mm-hmm. it's his work, and he is so clever. I mean, I've tried so many times to um, dissect ha- uh, Kasha and to really think about how he has cobbled it together. I, I find it very difficult to do that in terms of the structure and so on but um, I think the things that I feel like I share with him which I don't think I necessarily drew from uh, Cache or his work in particular but it sort of was useful to remind me of those things um, was, was making the audience participate in some way which is to essentially get them to ask questions through the film through mm-hmm. the viewing um, not to provide the easy answer, but, you, but but also not to obfuscate to the point where people want to switch off. You know, that, I mean, there's a there's a fine line, isn't there? Because it's about what information you reveal at what point, I suppose, isn't it? Um, to be to be confident, bold with those longer takes. I think there's something which just feels very natural to me, having spent so much time as a director in theatre seeing everything from one angle in the proscenium arch Mm -hmm. my fear always was that my work would feel too theatrical i.e. it would would feel like it was seen from one position and not actually I wouldn't have the confidence to move the camera into the necessary place but actually where we need it to like for example in Lady Macbeth Sometimes it's useful if the only option an audience has is to look away from the screen, you're not going to get the relief of the cut or they have to leave, then actually that's what we need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, to use sound as well in the way that Hanukkah does, I mean, I think he's amazing in what he can create with sound. Um, and silence too, I mean, you keep silence. music to an absolute minimum in the film. Yes, exactly. I mean, he, yes, and where he does use music especially in White Ribbon, we've seen its source, 
mm-hmm. and then we can continue into the next scene. That's fine. But we would never, for example, just place it without there being um, an understanding of where it's come from. I think that's very important. Mm. And I think what he, you know, what I share with Hanukkah in that sense is that music can so easily make you uh, can assist you in what you are to feel can sort of emotionally signpost mm-hmm. and carry you through a difficult moment when ha- Hanukkah wants you to do that work for yourself I'm not going to tell you yeah um, that's why some of the best score the score I like is essentially percussive it's about rhythm and uh, tempo it's not actually about mood so much you know that it's not about um but yeah, but you know, he makes he makes the scenes work in themselves through performance, uh, and then you don't require music because it's working. You, know, yeah. you don't need the music to sort of smooth over the the rough the rough edges and the cracks mm-hmm. and so on. I I think he'd rather watch people try to figure out how to feel than yeah. give them any suggestion of of direction or guidance. Yeah, he just leaves us there. And I like that. I mean, I I really feel like, but personally, I don't feel that. Um, cinema should necessarily, you know, it, clearly he has a message, or he like it's not polemical, but it's you know it's not, and he's not trying to um, teach you anything. But there's a provocation. It's about being a provocateur, isn't it? It's about being mm. a provocateur. It's about encouraging audience members to be uh, to participate in the experience of going to the cinema or watching at home. Um, not giving all the information up front and allowing you to relax and just enjoy the experience but actually you know I feel like when I watched Seventh Continent it actually had a physical effect on my body I felt like it was it was like not a not a sort of tsunami in the sort of romantic sense of a huge arch and crashing wave but the surge mm. just of of how that water just pushes and pushes and pushes and pushes and I thought over 90 minutes however long it was I was just it was just pushing against me throughout and you know at the end I, I felt in bits you know I felt absolutely shredded by the experience of watching this family f- sort of systematically destroy themselves <laughs> well that's how I felt at the end of Benny's video that first yeah. screening in 92 it's just Oh, okay. Now I know what liver failure feels like. Yes, my entire body has stopped it's working. Shut down in the cinema. Yeah. yeah, just sitting stock still, not moving at all in this tiny theater. Yeah, because the movie wouldn't let me breathe. Yeah, and that was a new experience for me. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So these are the things you know that I, I think it's dangerous to try and emulate, and you know, but uh, but ultimately these are useful things to just bear in mind, aren't they, when mm-hmm. you are making something? Well, you know what's possible, right? You can shoot for it if you want to, but you can also avoid it at all costs. Yes, and I, maybe there's something which is a bit more sort of. I feel like in Lady Macbeth, certainly, and in the work that I like, the, the blood is pumping a bit more in the sense that it's that there's a sort of rougher quality to it. It's not quite a sort of methodically worked out that. Mm-hmm. You know, in certain respects, I'm following actors wherever they want to go. That the, the impulse to move is how you sort of end up blocking the scene. It right. comes off an impulse that they have, and that means that you're not then being quite so careful about camera position. But then you make sure that you have, you know, the emotion of the scene captured. Mm-hmm. Well, for all the composition, for all the precision, it's a story about desire, and desire is messy, and desire moves. Yes. So, yeah, 
Yes, and that's what we found, you know, those jump cuts and the camera moving and so it's in out of focus and so on, it helps. Like, I felt like that was, it was, there was a good correlation between what we were feeling and what we were watching and what, what, and the way in which we recorded it, or which we captured it. Yeah. Um, in the same, same way that when Catherine is essentially made into a sort of ornament, you know, we present her as such in the centre of the frame as an object and then we don't move the camera just watch her sort of she's in stasis basically so she, she's sort of preserved yeah that's what she is she's preserved it's the specimen shot sooner or later something's going to happen yeah yeah and that she needs then what we were trying to do is then if she needs to break out then she has to physically break out of the frame mm-hmm. so the frame won't hold her up to that point she had been sort of squashed into the frame and the only way of which she can sort of break out is actually to break through the frame and that's where we and then the camera is late to move and then follows her as she then starts to wake up. But, you know, that, you know I, I watch all of Hanukkah's films in preparation for this film just so that, because it, for me it's, a, it's the equivalent of sharpening the pencils, that you, you just remind yourself of, he's the master of, sort of composition, um, of, of structure, of performance, you know, all of those things. And, and actually it's just useful to remind yourself of what is possible. <laughs> and, you know, and... Um, yeah, he's a great standard, isn't he? To sort of have there, you know, to, to compare yourself to, you know. Yeah. Never match, never match, never oh, find that. Don't worry, if he can be angry at a glass of water, <laughs> he can destroy all of us. Yes, exactly. <laughs> My thanks to Will Oldroyd, whose new film, Lady Macbeth, is in theaters in the US and Canada right now, opening wider on Friday, August 4th, and coming to DVD and Blu ray in the UK just three weeks from today on August 21st. If you can, though, see it on a big screen. It's gorgeous. You can find Will on Twitter at W-A-Oldroid, all one word, and you can find Cachet on DVD in the U.S. from Sony Pictures Home Entertainment and in Canada from Mongrel Media. There's also an all-region Blu-ray available in the U.K. from Artificial Eye that's pretty good, and not too expensive. It's like nine pounds right now. The film is also available on iTunes and Google Play. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast. S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you, and if you're the one who's been sending me these tapes, I gotta say they're a little out of focus. Thanks for listening.